1,638,000,000,000 dirhams. In August of this year, that was the total consumer debt in the United Arab Emirates. If you spread that number over the population of, of the country, about 10 million, that's about 163,800 dirhams per resident of debt. That's a lot of debt. I'm, I'm assuming most of you probably don't have that much debt. Maybe some of you do. If you've ever been in debt to someone or to a bank, you know that that is a heavy burden. When, when a part of every paycheck um, comes to your hand and then straight to another, uh, it weighs on you. We feel it. And for some of us today, uh, the debt that we owe, it might feel insurmountable. Um, but as we pay, there's this feeling um, of joy as we pay down that debt. Um, Christians desperately need to know how to think about everything and how to think about debt, um, how to think about owing uh, something to another person. We need to know what God wants us to think about debt. And today's text focuses on, on that very thing, on the debt that we owe to one another. And while other debts sometimes feel like we can never pay them off, this debt is truly never-ending. It's inexhaustible. We'll be owing payments on it for the rest of our lives, and yet it doesn't give us a feeling um, of burden. Uh, it's a debt of love. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 13. That's where we'll be today. It's after Acts. If you hit 1 Corinthians, you've gone too far. Um, as you know, for the past several weeks, we've been studying the book of Romans. Just kidding. Um, we're just jumping in it today for a little bit. And there's a few reasons for that. But for now, let me catch you up on what you need to know about the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans is it's a book about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote it to the church of Rome, uh, to the church in the city of Rome, which is made up of Christians from various backgrounds, Jews, Gentiles, and even though Paul had not yet been to Rome himself, he wrote it so that he could encourage the Roman church there, and he wrote it because he himself was on his way to Spain in order to reach people with the gospel where it had not yet been proclaimed. If you've never read through Romans before, uh, it'll take you about an hour to read from beginning to end. So if you read for 10 minutes a day, you can finish it by next week. But let me give you a one-sentence highlight of the first 11 chapters. Every human being deserves God's wrath for their sin. But God freely sent Jesus Christ to justify sinners who receive this gift by faith. You know, there's 11 chapters, there's a lot more in there, and you should read it for yourself. Um, it's worth reading. And then in chapter 12, Paul pivots. He shifts what he's talking about um, and starts to give um, lots of commands about how to live life together as Christians. Before chapter 12, not many commands. After chapter 12, lots of commands. But like a plant, you know, without water or soil, um, all these commands will dry up if they're not planted in the good soil of those first 11 chapters. Um, but today we find ourselves in chapter 13. Paul has just described the way that Christians are to relate to the government by giving them the respect and honor and, 
and even taxes that they deserve. And now we pick up in verse 8. Hopefully you found the text in your Bible by, by now. But let me, um, let me read it for us. Please follow along. Romans 8, verse 8, or sorry, Romans 8, 13. Romans 13, 8 through 14. Final answer. Let's read. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray now for him to speak to us through it. Father in heaven, we glorify you for who you are, and we, we ask that this afternoon you would soften our hearts to hear your word today. Free our minds from distracting thoughts. Help us to meditate clearly and uh, truthfully on your word. We know that these words are as, as true for us today as they were for the church in Rome 2,000 years ago. We pray that you would give us soft hearts to respond with faith and obedience to what your word says. And may Christ be magnified today, uh, even as you speak through me, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians, we're on a journey. We're not on a road trip to Lewa. We're not on an adventure like a fiction book, but we're on a journey to heaven. And God means to use this text to help us get there safely. And today as we look at God's word, I believe God wants to convince us to wake up and love each other. Wake up and love each other. Through our text, we're going to see that each of us owes a debt to one another of love. And then Paul gives us two main ways to consider that love. One behind us and one before us. One that's in the past and another that's in the future. The first point that we'll consider is this. Look back to the law and love. Look back to the law and love. We see this in verses 8 through 10. And the first thing we see there is, owe no one anything. If you remember a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Brian told us that the Bible is filled with ironic stories and ideas. Um, and if you're an observant reader, you may have already noticed something ironic in the text in these first four words. Paul says here to owe no one anything. But in the very previous sentence in verse 7, he says, pay uh, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, 
Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. It seems like the Romans already have a lot that they owe. And now Paul ironically tells them in verse 8, owe no one anything. What's he getting at? Paul wants the Romans to see that compared to the greatness of the debt of love that they have towards one another, it's as if they have no other debts. That's how great that debt is of love. But it's worth drawing an application um, about the debt that we might have towards one another on earth, just briefly. Uh, This text doesn't answer the yes or no question on whether Christians should have debt or not. Um, It doesn't necessarily condemn it here, and there's other places in Scripture that seem to allow for debt. But, although this text doesn't condemn it, it does make it clear that Christians are the kind of people who pay back their debts. They pay what they owe. And so if we borrow, we shouldn't do so lightly or loosely. Um, We should do it with wisdom. And if we borrow, we must pay what we owe. So if you are here and you're someone who has debt, small or great, um, or if you're thinking about getting into debt, maybe taking a loan for some reason, um, I encourage you to talk to other Christians about it. Um, Maybe talk to the elders about it. Ask them if they think the loan that you're considering is a wise choice or a foolish one. It would definitely be wise to pray as well. Um, James 1.5 tells us that uh, if we lack wisdom, we can ask the Lord who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to them. So pray to God for wisdom on things like this. Well, the, the full sentence there, verse 8, says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. We'll stop there. The next question you might be wondering is why? Why do I owe a debt of love to others? You know, we could answer this in a few ways, but a safe bet when you're reading the Bible is to keep reading because sometimes your question just gets answered. That's what happens here. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul is looking back to the law here, the law of Moses. And the debt that we never cease paying is the call to one another because love fulfills what the law of Moses demands. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this might feel like an oversimplification. Um, There are 613 commandments uh, between Genesis and Deuteronomy. And to say that they're all summed up in one word, that seems like a big statement. But that's what Paul says. And Paul goes on to list some of those commands. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Don't steal. Don't covet. These four commands probably sound familiar to you, even if you didn't grow up in church or reading the Bible, um, because they're from what Christians call, or what the Bible calls, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. You can find that full list of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. There's lots of other commandments around there as well. And Paul says that those commandments about relating to one another, as well as any other commandment, are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now Paul is quoting from Leviticus, from Leviticus 19.18. We read that in our scripture reading earlier. Um, And it would be interesting to go back and reread that and think about how love is the reason for each of those commands. Um, But Paul is He's basically repeating something that Jesus said in the Gospels as well, in Matthew 22. 
There, Jesus is asked a question about, you know, what is the most important law? What's the most important commandment? And Jesus says that all of the commandments in the Bible, they hang underneath these two different laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And every other commandment hangs on those. But Paul here, because he's already kind of zoomed into our relationships with one another, um, he focuses in on the second part of what Jesus said, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? In the gospel, Jesus said again and again that we must deny ourselves to follow him, that the last will be first and the first will be last. And so he's not saying here that the basis of our love is how much we think about ourselves. You know, we don't say to our neighbor, I love myself so much, and that's why I love you. That'd be kind of weird. No, loving your neighbor is, is simply a way of, of saying that God's people should treat their neighbors the way that they would like to be treated. Love consists of giving rather than receiving. And love is the heart of these commands that we find in the law of Moses. Now, the interesting thing here is that love... Um, this is not the, the world's idea of love. If you look, these are all um, things that we don't do. These are all things that love doesn't do. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. And the reason that's interesting, like I said, that's not the world's idea of love. The world understands love to be more of a feeling. Um, when you meet you know, the person who you were meant to be with, it's like that kind of passionate, fiery feeling you get. It's something that happens to you. And in the world's eyes, love is also giving green lights to other people when they pursue their own feelings of love, no matter what that is. According to the world, love sets people free. Love doesn't judge. At its core, love in the world's eyes ends up being a lot more about self-expression. It means that you need to cut off your parents and, and maybe your church if you need to so that you can be you. Love in the world's eyes means you do what is right for you. A book I read recently said it this way, love, or at least our definition of it, is the one non-negotiable law. The world doesn't believe that God is love, but that love is God. Our text today is countercultural for that reason. It doesn't say love is the law, or that love cancels the law. It says that love is the fulfilling of the law. So rather than enabling sin because we have some feeling of love, true love for our neighbors ends up obeying these things. It ends up fulfilling these commands. So take that first commandment there, for instance, in, in verse 9. Do not commit adultery. You know, someone might say they fell out of love with their spouse. Um, and now they love another person. And the world might look on and say, you know, that's not great, but, you know, you can't argue with love. But if we, if we truly love our neighbor, we truly love our spouse in a way that puts their best interests first, we can never do something like that to them. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And we should let that be a lesson for us. 
Uh, true love does not condone or enable sin. True love sees, or sees sin for what it truly is, unloving, hurtful, deceptive, destructive. Sin causes pain and hardship between friends, between families. And sometimes we, we can't see how our sin might hurt our neighbor. But don't believe the lie that it's just a little sin. Don't believe that lie. True love for neighbor keeps God's commands, and it walks in step with what he's told us in his word. Unless we fall into error on the other side, um, let me ask you, when you obey God's commandments, do you do it out of love? Love is the heart and soul of these commands. So if we lose sight of love, then legalism is sure to follow. And if you think about it, life, life is filled with situations where we don't have a specific command in Scripture for what to do. You know, Scripture doesn't say a lot about our cell phones, specifically how to drive on Shakeside Road, how to drive on Shakeside Road while using our cell phones. Um, maybe that one's an obvious one for you. But we need to use love of God and love of our neighbor, as well as wisdom, when, when things like that don't have a specific command. Because the heart of the commands is love. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1, 9 through 10. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Love with knowledge and discernment is, is the guide for Christians. And as we look back to the law and love, we do so because love fulfills the law. And if we follow these commands and lack love, then we're, we're like whitewashed tombs, you know, dead on the inside, even though we're clean on the outside. And while we've noticed that each of these commands here is all negative, you shall not steal, don't covet, uh, we should know that loving our neighbor is not just about avoiding certain behaviors, Right? Love also compels us to act. I think that's why our text doesn't just say love is obeying the law. Rather, love is the fulfilling of the law. Fulfill is a much richer word than obey. It means that the law has received the full measure of what it requires. The cup of the law is filled to the brim in all its cracks um, by love. And love leads us to refrain from some things, and to press in to others. At work, for instance, you know, loving your boss compels us to avoid stealing or lying. But it also compels us to do good to our bosses, maybe even to speak well of them, to be kind to them, even if they treat us poorly. Or what about the church? You know, our passage today, it, it, has, pass, it has applications for all of life, all of our relationships. Um, but the law, yeah, the, the law has, has applications for all of our relationships, not just God's people. But Paul's command here is to love each other. And he's writing to the Roman church. And it's primarily concerned about our love for one another um, as Christians and about our love for one another within a local church. So I wonder, what, what does that look like for you to love fellow Christians? 
Hopefully it's more than simply not murdering them. Uh, we'll find examples of, of how Christians love each other. If we just you know, go back a chapter in Romans, there's all kinds, starting in verse 12, or chapter 12. Paul gives commands like, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. You know, in our church, I, I hear us use the term brother or sister all the time, and it's clear that we think about one another as, as family, at least in some sense. Um, but are there ways that you could grow in loving or serving your church family? And I wonder how your heart is when you do serve them. Do you see serving your brothers or sisters in Christ as a joy or as an inconvenience? Are you seeking out ways to serve or are you just waiting, waiting for people to serve you? In this church, just like any other church, we're going to sin against one another. Our relationships are going to get messy. But loving other means recognizing the way that we see Christ in them. When was the last time that you encouraged someone um, by telling them how you see Christ in their life? Maybe someone's done that to you recently. Um, this last week, someone sent me a message about um, just encouraging me about you know, one small thing I did for one person. And you know, that, that text didn't make me feel like my job was done. You know, mission accomplished, I'm good now. It made me want to do it even more, to serve and love others more and more. And we can do that for one another. Um, we should use our words as a way to spur love on more and more in each other's lives. Now that we've looked back, Paul is going to use these last four verses to turn our gaze from the past to the future. And in verses 11 through 14, my charge to you is this, look forward to the day and live. Look forward to the day and live. This is another way to consider the debt of love that we have towards each other, that, that the day of salvation is drawing near. Paul begins by talking about the time, the hour. In verse 12, he mentions the day. Paul is speaking about Christ's return. And he says that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. But again, we might be asking ourselves, what's, what's Paul getting at? Paul was alive nearly 2,000 years ago, and we're, and we're still today waiting for Christ's return. Was Paul mistaken when he said that Christ's return was near? Maybe you're wondering that. We need to understand that the kind of nearness Paul is talking about is not necessarily chronological, um, not the return of Christ in respect to time. Um, he's talking about the return of Christ in respect to God's unfolding plan, his plan of redemption. In that unfolding plan, Christians are no longer waiting for a Messiah. We're no longer waiting for Jesus to come and uh, to live a perfect life in our place and to die. We're not waiting for him to rise again or for God to give the Holy Spirit to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. No, those things are in the rearview mirror for Christians. They're in the rearview mirror of God's unfolding plan, and there's one final main event looming in the horizon of faith, and that is Christ's return. Paul was looking forward to it then. 
and we're looking forward to it today. It's, it's the one thing that's next. Each calendar day brings us all nearer to that final day. I think Brian mentioned that earlier. We know it's coming. We just don't know when. And, and you probably feel that, especially today as we begin the new year. Um, maybe when you were a kid, you thought about what 2023 might look like. And you thought about flying cars and robots serving you breakfast and whatever else. Um, those predictions didn't come with a guarantee. But whether you're a Christian or not, there is one thing that's guaranteed. Each day brings you closer to that day. Each day you move nearer either to your death or to Christ's return. You're moving towards that day and there's nothing you can do about it. But what's not true for everyone is that word halfway through verse 11, salvation. And what makes the difference is the last word of verse 11, believed, belief, believing. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then God's word could not be more clear that you are one day closer today to God's wrath, not to God's rescue. With each hour, you're inching towards an eternity apart from God. And I wonder if you've thought much about the urgency that God's message to us in the Bible says. If you're, if you're curious about Christianity, I hope that you take this new year to consider what Christ has said in the Bible for yourself. Uh, use this year to think about it. It's an urgent matter. What about for us Christians? Well, as we start this new year, those who have believed in Christ are nearer today to salvation. One friend of mine that many of you know has that as his WhatsApp status. Christians, we are one day closer to heaven. I wonder how that phrase makes you feel. I don't think that our friend has that as a status, as a threat. You know, I think he, he's doing the same thing that Paul's doing here. Paul is using the nearness of the day of salvation not so much as a warning to get our act together, um, but to encourage a feeling of joy and motivation among Christians. You know, there's other places in the Bible that uses Christ's return in that sense, that Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. Um, but here in this text, it's, um, it's less like the song, Where Shall I Be?, and it's a little more like the song on Jordan's Stormy Banks that we just sang. You know, we're longing for Christ's return. Um, one phrase that is especially relevant to our passage is at the end of the second verse. It says, There God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away. That day is coming um, where night is scattered away forever. We're moving towards that day. And Christians, Christians are people who loved Christ's appearing and they long for him to come again. When we became Christians, uh, we became citizens of heaven. And the interesting thing now is that we belong to heaven and yet we're waiting for heaven. We're stuck in the middle in this place that's not our home. We have salvation and yet we're waiting for salvation. And as we wait for that day, we remind each other that Jesus is coming back and we are filled with hope. 
We long for that day, and as we do, we're filled with motivation to live like the heavenly people of God that we are, to live like Jesus. That's what Jesus said in John 13, uh, that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And I think Paul wants the Roman church to understand that many Christians are in a sleepy state. And many of us might be sleepy too. Sleepy with reference to the law of love. Sleepy with reference to our obligation to others. And he says the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Not just from this sermon. Wake up to Christ's call to love each other. Christians, think Think about it for a moment. Are there ways that you're sleeping in reference to your love for one another? Are you apathetic or lazy when it comes to showing up and showing love and and serving other people? Let these words be an alarm clock to your soul. Wake up and love each other. Just like an alarm clock, it it might feel uncomfortable when the alarm goes off. It might be difficult to get out of bed, but it's worth it, and it's who you are called to be. You are citizens of heaven if you were in Christ, and you won't always have the opportunities you have now to love one another, and as we together set our gaze on heaven, on eternity, um, think about what that day will be like. Heaven will be filled with people from every tribe and tongue from every people and language. And God's call to love reaches from the people um, most like us to the people that are least like us. And like I said earlier, uh, we're on a journey to heaven together. We don't choose necessarily who's on the journey with us. Uh, But if we don't love God's people now, I don't know what makes us think that we'll love them in eternity. So even when it's difficult or challenging, we need to make it our duty to love and not to divide. There's this ancient Greek story about a king named Cyrus going to fight another king uh, called Scythia. And as he came to a broad river that was too broad for his army to cross, um, he didn't build a bridge to go over it, and he didn't take boats to go through it, Instead, they diverted the river into smaller streams, into channels, and to the point that it was shallow enough for all the men to cross over the river. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the very thing that our enemy would like to do to us today. One of the ways that he seeks to conquer, that the devil seeks to conquer us, is through dividing us. Dividing the people of God into cliques, into factions, just so that we might be easily overcome. But I urge you, don't sleep on the enemy's plan to to divide us. But wake up and love each other. Maybe there's someone in the church that you feel um, enmity against, that you, you feel bitter for some reason. Maybe you find yourself exclusively spending time with only certain people in our body and not others. Maybe it's not on purpose, but that's, that's just the reality of it. I think um, that is a small way 
that division can set into our church. But rather than letting that be the case, uh, we can press into others who aren't like us. We can spend time in this new year with people who have different passports than we have. We can find people, maybe there's somebody older in the church that could disciple you, that you could talk to. We can do things like that, and when we do, we are helping each other on our journey to heaven. We can fight against division like that from setting in in our church. Well, in these last few verses, we see Paul's conclusion. Paul says, The day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is language that Paul uses in other letters. If you've read Colossians, he uses similar language there. And in a lot of ways, putting off and putting on are two sides of one coin. The way that you put on a new t-shirt is by taking off your old one first and then putting it on. Um, And walking in the light necessarily means casting off darkness. But it's helpful to, to think about these in two different parts. How do we cast off the works of darkness? Well, we do it by giving up sin and things that characterize our lives before Christ. Verse 13 gives us a miniature list of works of darkness. It's kind of like uh, that list in the first section of commands. It's not exhaustive. But here in this list, each idea comes in a pair, and I think it's best to take those pairs as one idea. So the first pair describes a lack of self-restraint that that results in overindulgence. The second pair describes unrestrained promiscuity, so like sexuality outside of God's good design. The third pair describes fights that are fueled by jealousy. Like I said, this is only a miniature list to describe some of the works of darkness, some of the works of the flesh, but they're enough to get our minds thinking. What sin do you need to cast off so that you can stop walking in darkness? Maybe as we read these words earlier in uh, verse 13, there's a word that stood out to you, a, pr- a particular word that convicted you. Or maybe there's some other sin that God has had his finger on in your life for a while and you've not yet yielded to him. Don't wait. It will only grow if that sin stays in the darkness. Confess it to God. Confess it to someone you trust. Bring it to the light because the day is at hand. You know, this could be the year that you finally bring that hidden sin in your life to the surface and and that burden can be lifted off of your shoulders. And since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love, the armor of light putting on good deeds and love towards one another not only brings light, it displaces darkness. I remember uh, a couple of months ago, my wife Kanoa was stretching on the floor in our room, and I walked in and I turned on the lights, and she gasped. She looked under the bed just at the moment that I I turned on the lights, and kind of deep down in there, uh, where you can't really see from above and you can't really get the broom, There was a pile of dust and hair and other stuff that we had never noticed. It was really surprising. And uh, 
once that light was shown under there, we didn't turn the light off and forget about it. We didn't leave it. We got the broom out and we swept it up. Um, We couldn't have left it there if we wanted to. Putting on the armor of light is like that. The more that we walk in the light, the more that we notice the little sins and works of darkness that we didn't notice before. It's, it's armor because it protects us from those works of darkness. Imagine if Kano and I had noticed mold down beneath our bed or a nest of bugs or snakes or something. In the darkness, those things grow, but in the light, we can deal with them. So put on the armor of light and don't let sin fester in the dark. Is there something that is in your life that you need to bring to the light? Perhaps um, you need to put something on in order to shed light on that darkness. Perhaps you struggle with jealousy of other people, even other people in the church. Perhaps they have more money than you, or you think they do, or perhaps they have more days off of work than you do. Maybe you're jealous because they have a child and and you long for a child yourself. You could let that make your heart bitter towards them, but what if when we're tempted to be jealous, um, we become generous instead? You know, if if you struggle with jealousy towards others, I urge you first to confess it, bring it to the light, but then Love causes us to walk in generosity towards others, not jealousy. Love draws us towards contentment, not coveting. We can use things like gratitude to protect ourselves from grumbling. Walking in the light looks like doing good to others and fighting our jealousy with the armor of light. And one more thing, just as we think about that list there, is that there seems to be a a heavy focus on sexual things. Perhaps that's just because of the culture in Rome that Paul was writing to, but I really don't have any reason to think that our culture today is any less sexualized. So maybe you're here today and you're struggling with pornography. You know, it feels like something you can't overcome. Maybe this week you clicked on an Instagram photo Um, For lustful reasons, maybe you typed in a a website knowing exactly what it was that you were looking for. Maybe there's a coworker that you've had lustful thoughts about. Christians, uh, do what it takes to walk in the light. And um, the motivation for that is not guilt. Think about the motivations in in our text right here. Christ tells us to walk in the light Um, because of his return, he's coming soon, we should walk and live like the people that we are, people of the light. Our identity should drive us to live uh, like God's people. And we can also be motivated uh, by love. Let love be the fuel. Don't let lust be the fuel. Love um, drives us to love our family or our future family by diverting our eyes, um, by closing out of that browser. You can love that man or woman that you're objectifying um, by not treating them so selfishly in your mind. You can love your brother or sister in Christ by not lying to them about your struggles, about your sin. 
And I think this is so important because lust is so dangerous. It doesn't stay as it is. It always grows when it's left in the darkness. And I think it's especially a sin that we must cast off and make no provision for, like our, like our text says. Well, the last verse here tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most crucial part of the whole text. For Christians, that is our fuel. Our fuel for righteous living is Christ. We walk in love because God first loved us. He sent, his lo- uh, he sent his son who perfectly lived, who perfectly loved his neighbor, and who suffered from his neighbors as well. Suffered persecution and even death on a cross at the hands of his neighbors. And he rose again because of his love for them. And through his spirit, now, today, Christians have power over sin and over death that would be impossible otherwise. Like I said at the beginning, these commands, they can't grow unless they have good soil. And that good soil is the gospel. Lasting fruit can't grow if we don't abide in the vine. The gospel of God's love towards us in Christ must be our fuel to live like this. And our our relationship with him is how we stay awake and love each other. Scripture says that's how we even know what love is that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay, out, lay down our lives for one another. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can't put on something you don't have. Um, you have to be in Christ before you put him on. Putting on, a, putting on Christ is a prerequisite to truly loving other people. So if you really want to love others, Um, consider Christ. Jesus taught us what true love is when he laid down his life for sinners like us. And the way that you can put on Christ is this, repent and believe. Turn from your sin, trust in Christ. You must acknowledge your sin before a holy God and trust only in his uh, perfect life in your place on the cross. That's your only hope of salvation. Last week we were in Luke 2 and, and Brian showed us in the text that Jesus is like a sword that divides. There's some he raises up and there's some he brings low, but there's no one who stays on the fence. There's no one who stays in the middle. We can't wait to make a decision about this. Uh, we can't sit um, without a decision. We must decide one way or the other to repent and believe or not. But if you are in Christ, your debt is paid, and now we wait together for Christ's return. So look back, look forward, and love one another. Look back and see that we fulfill the law through love. Look forward and see that we don't need to wait to live like we're in heaven. And wake up today because our debt to each other is love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we pray that you would make us a family of love. Lord, grow your love in us and use your word to motivate us. Use us to motivate one another towards love. 
We pray that the world around us, Lord, so many who don't know you would see us and recognize that we're different and that the reason we're different is because of our love for one another. Help us to wake up to each other's needs so that we can love each other well. We pray all these things in the glorious name of Christ. Amen.